All right, we return to the Westminster Confession of Faith tonight, and we're on chapter 3, which is God's eternal decree. So kind of the macro structure of the confession, you have the first chapter on Holy Scripture, where does all this stuff come from? Then you got to do a chapter on the nature and being of God, and then we look at God's eternal decree, and then what follows is, is creation and providence. The things that God decreed are the creation of the world and then the way he's run the world. And so there's a structure to it. Tonight we come to one of the most distinctive reform doctrines, and it's on uh, the eternal decree of God. Interestingly, you know, it's helpful to remember that the Westminster divines did not go there to debate the doctrines. They all showed up believing in what's written here. But this is one of the chapters, I think there were over 20 sessions of the assembly in the minutes on how to get it right in writing. And there were numerous committee meetings And they labored very hard, and we're going to see the fruits of it. Well, you have an introductory paragraph. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's the basic statement. We hold from the scriptures that God eternally decreed, ordained, uh, whatever happens. It happens because God ordained it from the least to the greatest. Yet as thereby, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of, or of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now those are some of the, let's fend off from implications that we don't hold of the basic doctrine. Well, you know, one of the debates was whether to make the title plural or singular. Is it God's eternal decrees? Or is it God's eternal decree? Well, certainly we can and do speak in the plural sense. We do speak of the decrees of God. But the divines, I think, very rightly and insightfully said we want to title it in the singular. That the decree of God is one. It is whole. It ultimately is, is, a, is a unified whole in his mind. And we hold that whatsoever comes to pass is decreed from eternity. And here's some verses from which they're reflecting. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And so there's language from Paul of God foreknowing what's going to happen, and not only knowing it's going to happen, but actually deciding that what will happen. Prohorizo is is the to foreordain, to to predestined. Ephesians 1 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So the Bible reveals a divine plan for all, for the whole of eternity, centered in God the Son, and it is God's eternal purpose. Verse 11, this is kind of your all purpose sovereignty of God verse. Having been predestined, okay, you go, okay, then here's where, here's where people go, we can't deny the language is there. We can't deny that the word election's in the Bible. We can't deny that the word predestination's in the Bible. So what we're gonna do is we're going to, we're gonna, we're gonna turn it aside downstream. Well, it's predestined according to what? Well, Paul says, according to the purpose of him. And so predestination reflects not God responding to contingencies in the created realm. But no, he's reflecting his purpose 
of him and then and then of him who works all things. Not only has God decreed it, when we get to the chapter on providence, he's superintending it. I love that verse in Jeremiah 1.12. I am watching over my word to fulfill it. Not only is it true, not only did he eternally decree it, he's got his hands on it. He's micromanaging it, as it were, in that sense. Uh, according to what? According to the counsel of his will. And whatsoever comes to pass, God decreed in eternity. And here's a specific example. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon says that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now that expression, determinate counsel, is an important one. That's the decree of God. You say, what is the decree of God? It's his determinate counsel. It is his, it's his will that determined things. And there is Peter saying that the crucifixion of Jesus was foreordained, foreknown, predestined, it was according to the determinate counsel in eternity past of God the Father. That's why it happened. Because God determined it in his counsel. Now, I always love Jesus' statement in Matthew 10, 29. There's a version of it in Mark and Luke as well. Because you have people will say, well, we don't believe that God's in charge of it. When we say whatsoever, we, we basically mean the means but not the end. The end's not the means. And Jesus says, you know, th- give me an example of the most insignificant thing you can think of. Two sparrows falling to the ground. Jesus is not even the most insignificant thing happening that you think that you see happening is randomly happening. It's all happening according to the will of the Father. He goes on and says, and every hair of your head is numbered. And so his detailed sovereignty. And so whatsoever comes to pass is decreed from eternity. Now let me just step back and say, if that is not so then whoever's will is actually effective, that person, to that extent, is God, and God is not. If God is not a free, independent, sovereign being whose will is done, if he's reacting to something outside of himself that is able to change and move him, well, then he is not the God the Bible says he is. Uh, If you are, I also argued from the attributes of God, If you are almighty, eternal, all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-present, well, the things either happen because you made them happen or you let them happen, which in the end amounts to the same thing. He decreed all these things. Now, they're going to emphasize that it is free. It's his free will. We, We believe in free will. We believe in God's free will. It is wise, and that's not, that's not, it should be capital L, capital W wise. When it's according to his eternal counsel, it's that ineffable wisdom, that inscrutable wisdom. And so what you can't get is you can't get me to make it all tied together. I don't, you and I don't, here's where back, this is why Paul at the end of his Romans exposition, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who's been his counselor? His paths are beyond tracing out. So wisdom, that's far above us, it's governing it. Uh, it is eternal, it is absolute, and it is unconditional. Uh, Shaw says, the execution of his decrees is not suspended upon any condition which may or may not be performed. So that, while there are conditions, we're going to see that there are conditions, but the accomplishment of his will is not dependent on any condition. The conditions are the way that he does his will. So there's, God is not wait, watching to see if 
on anything, he has determined it all. Now that is, now that is a statement. Let me just say that I just made a massive assault on all of your humanism. And I like to say that, you know, I was converted on a Sunday night through Hosea 3. I was Gomer. Uh, Jesus was Hosea. Uh, so the next Sunday I went to church. I was 30 years old. I'm a staunch humanist. Been traced as an intellectual humanist all these years. And I got my new Wappin Bible with a Bible cover. I got it at a Christian bookstore with a big a handle so I could hit people on the way to church. Um, and then the, he's preaching Romans. The first sermon I hear is on Romans 9. Not on predestination, on reprobation. And I thought the man had lost his cotton pick in mind. And it was such a, and, and ultimately for me at least, I came to the point that I was not arguing with the preacher, with the theologian, with the confession. I was arguing with the word of God. And I had to either decide that God, let God be true and every man a liar. And I had to be the creature. I had to humble my mind. Now humbling your mind does not mean that you fly into irrationality. It's not from reason to faith. It's, it's faith reasoning with God's word. It's God's word being that which is true. And we begin our reason. And I, Lord, I, Lord willing, it is the case with me now and the case with you now. The facts are the things that are taught in the word of God. Our reason proceeds from those facts. And the Bible's teaching on God's sovereign degree is indisputable. Whatsoever comes to pass was decreed in eternity in the will and counsel of God. Now, a couple of issues. Well, like first, well, then, so your God's the author of evil. Now, that expression, author of evil, is carefully chosen. He is not the proximate cause. God does not do any evil. That's what we're saying. Well, why do you say that? We say because the Bible says it. The Bible shows God that way. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm 5 verse 4. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. For you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And you go, well, why is there evil? I, in fact, I gave an address in Harrisburg two weekends ago on this topic. It was on the, uh, we had, there was a conference on Providence. It was me and Phil Johnson from John MacArthur's uh, ministry. So I had a good time. Phil's always lively and fun. Uh, but, um, I had the, the providence and the, and, and the presence of evil. And there's all these theories of how there can be evil that aren't God's fault. And they're all ways of diminishing who God is. Now, actually, we don't have to, the, the truth is, there is evil in the world because God decreed that there would be evil in the world. But that is irrefutable. But God is not the author of it. Uh, I think a helpful way to, to, to express it is God sinlessly uses sin. God ordained evil things to good ends. The, the, the best good end is, of course, the display of the perfections of the glories of all his attributes. But God, or, clearly he ordained evil or else he would not be God or there would not be evil but he is not the author of it. God does not do evil. He does not cause evil. There is, you and I do evil. There is causation that we do. Now that gets to, as well as to the second part. God's degree to, decrees do no violence to the will of individuals. 
Because, you know, one of the arguments is, so you say that we're puppets. No, no, we didn't say that you're puppets. You're not a puppet. The Bible plainly teaches absolute divine sovereignty and complete human responsibility. And you say to me, well, how do you reconcile those two? It is not my job to reconcile the two, and I cannot reconcile the two. But there's not the slightest doubt that the Bible teaches human responsibility. People are judged because of the sins that they commit. No one, no one says in the final judgment, well, look, I was decreed by God to do this. That's not, a, that's not an objection you get to make. No, no, you did it. You chose to do it. And so uh, the, the, the decree of God does not do violence to the will of individuals. You know, you know very well you're not a puppet. Of course, you know, on the puppet charge, I go straight to Jesus. Not only was Jesus' life predestined, it was largely pre-recorded. Are you saying he was a puppet? He was the freest of all men. He had a true free will, and yet uh, his will was perfectly in line with what was predestined and even pre-written in such great detail about him. You start looking at the, the prophecies, the specific prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. It is an incredible list of things that had, had to happen and did happen. Uh, he was completely free in his choices, and yet God was completely sovereign in his decree because God decrees both the means and the ends. This helps with prayer. Why should I pray? Because God has decreed that you would. God has told you, well, first of all, you do it because God has commanded you to do it and because he invites you to do it. And so you got your next door neighbor, Bob, and let's say God has decreed on Tuesday that Bob is going to be saved. And God also decrees on Monday that, that, he, that, that on Tuesday he will be praying, he will be saved in answer to the prayer that you offer on Monday. Well, therefore you, by the way, therefore you will pray because he's decreed it, but you must pray. And of course, you and I, we don't read it backwards, we read it forward. I don't know what God has decreed about Bob. What I know is that God has told me to pray and he's told me he answers prayer. And then, and so I pray for Bob and in the decree of God, it's, he, you know, I'm simplifying things. And so God's decree is not in the least bit at odds with our volition, our responsibility and our activity. The, end, the means are just as important as the ends. Under God's decree, men and women make their own choices without constraint. Now, that is true. Now, that does not, you know, I, I said before, I actually don't like the expression free will because in our time it's loaded with, with post-enlightenment baggage. Uh, what we mean is I like to say that all my, all my terms are wonkier. I know that. Genuine volition. How's that? Authentic volition. You make real choices. You don't make free choices because not all the options are available to you because you have a totally depraved nature. Well, not actually you don't anymore. You've been born again. But you have a partially depraved nature still. Only in heaven will we have free will again. Even then we will not be able to prove to, to choose evil. because And so the one who has free will is God. But nonetheless, we make our choices. We exercise. And actually, the problem is not in our wills. It's in our natures. We exercise wills that are genuine, and nowhere does the Bible but deny that. And yet, this is what it means that Scripture insists, well, the, 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 conf- the confession says, it not only allows secondary causes, it establishes them. The secondary causes are things not that God does, but that you do. And that's where the evil takes place. You and I commit the sin. We do things other than sin, too, by the way. But when it comes to evil, Eve, God is not the author of it because we exercise volition and his decree does not do violence 
to the will of the individual. Now you say again, I don't see how both can be true. And I go, well, I can't either. But I'm going to reason from the data of Scripture. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be God and tell us these things. And so Scripture insists on both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I remember in class at Westminster, Sinclair Ferguson trying to blame it on American football. I don't think that's fair. Where he says, you Americans are just so trained at a 100-yard zero-sum game. So if the ball's on the 20, by the way, did you see that guy who did an 80-yard punt last week? An 81-yard punt? He punted from his end zone, and the ball landed on the 19-yard line? Anyway, but Sinclair Ferguson says, so if it's on the 20, it's 80 that way. He goes, but no, no, it's 100% God's sovereignty. It's 100% your responsibility. Um. Let's talk about foreknowledge. Although God knows whatsoever, this is paragraph two, God knows whatsoever may come and can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass on such conditions. And so God knows all the contingencies. And this is a response to the Jesuit middle knowledge position and the Arminian foreknowledge position. Again, our dear Arminian friends, because they, they don't want to not use the Bible words. They can't deny the word elections there. They can't deny the word predestines there. And they say, well, here's how it worked. God looked through the, from eternity, he looked through the quarters of time, and he saw that you were going to believe. And because you believe, he chose you. Now, first of all, that vitiates the whole notion of sovereignty as it is intended to do. But, uh, but that's not true. Nowhere does the Bible say that. No, no. So this language is there. God's decree is not founded upon. He didn't decree that because you. He decreed that because of his will, his purpose, his pleasure. And so there are conditions, we'll see that, but God did not determine the will, his will, his decree, on the basis of what we would then do, and we were the ones exercising sovereignty. Um, I, I love Acts thirteen forty eight, partly because Luke's not even talking about predestination. It just kind of casually comes out. Paul's preaching in Pisidian Antioch, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is kind of how apostles talked. Um, and but notice the, notice the logic of it. It's not as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. They believed because they were appointed to eternal life. They were not appointed to eternal life because they believed. And then think of Jesus. Dr. Boyce once preached a sermon that got him in a lot of trouble because the title of the sermon was Jesus the Calvinist. It's a great sermon. And he wasn't saying Jesus was a disciple of Calvin. He's saying it's Calvinistic doctrine. And it was John 6, 37 to 40. Where Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, notice where the sovereignty is, they will come to me. He doesn't say, all who come to me, the Father will give to me. It's not faith, election, it's election, faith. And one of the reasons why that's true is because apart from the sovereign grace of God in our lives, we cannot come to him. That's, that's one of the key things. And this is why I've argued before that actually the, in terms of of the argumentation of the five points of Calvinism, the action is not actually at unconditional election, it's at total depravity. 
Once you accept what the Bible says about man in his unregenerate state, you better hope there's predestination because there's no other positive outcome. And Jesus says, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws them. And so clearly, God's decree, oh, he foreknows. But it's not on the basis of some future condition that he foreknows and therefore decrees. Um, And here's some language on predestination, paragraphs 3 and 4. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto eternal everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. These four, these angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Well, notice the first thing, the, the primary issue of the glory of God. Here's the issue. Because people go, you know, it doesn't seem right that God chooses some and not others. Well, of course, the answer to that is, did you say you wanted justice? It doesn't, because it, salvation's mercy. You know, when Paul argues this in Romans 9, his answer is God says, I will have mercy on him I have mercy. And so it's not like, um, it, it's not like you're in this morally neutral state. We're all sinners. And God sovereignly has mercy on some. And mercy, by definition, is freely given. If you earned it, it's not mercy. It's your deserts. And so if you're saying it doesn't sound fair, well, the only fair solution is everybody goes to hell. Uh, but here's the thing. The, I think the best way to really get this right is to say the chief end of all things is the glory of God. And here's the thing. What, what do we mean by the glory of God? Well, what we mean by the glory of God, I get this from Jonathan Edwards, is the display of the perfections of the excellencies of all the attributes of God. God desires, he wills that he would be known. And he wills that he would be known in all of his attributes. The reason he created the world, Jonathan Edwards has a long essay called The Reason for Which God Created the World. That reason is for the display of his glories. And the problem you and I have, because we're not yet perfected, is there's some of his attributes that we like better than others. Oh, I love love. God loves me. I love goodness. I love power in some contexts. I love mercy. Long-suffering. Oh, of wrath? Oh, I don't like that one. Spurgeon has a sermon illustration where attributes of God are being auctioned off and nobody bids on wrath, you know. Nobody bids on justice, but God bids on it. And it is God's will that he would be glorified in his grace towards the elect and in his justice and wrath towards the reprobate. And you and I say, if I was in charge, I wouldn't do it that way. It's another way of saying, I am a theist, and I want, I want, I'm a humanist, and I want God to be a humanist too. My friends, God is a theist. He is not a humanist. He does not believe the, the, the greatest calculation of good is the most pleasure, for, the greatest utility for the most number of human beings. He, and he is right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. And it must be so. That is, that is good. That is just. That is true. And so for the glory of God, we have the decree of election and the decree of reprobation. Apart from, without both of them, there would not be an eternal display of the 
perfections of the glories of all the attributes of God. Let's look at this a little bit. The primary issue is God's glory. This plainly states with the scriptures that the ultimate cause why a person is either saved or sent to hell, is either redeemed or is a reprobate, is God's eternal election, his unconditional decree from the foundation of the world. Now, Positively, we have the great statement of Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, when he chose us, by the way, the Arminians say, he chose that if you believe, then, then you'll be the elect. No, he didn't choose that, he chose us. He elected persons. When did he do it? In eternity past, he says in Romans 9, before they'd done anything good or evil. That they should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Absolute sovereignty. The reason believers are believers. The reason believers are, 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 are redeemed and will enter into glory is the, is the election of God. Correspondingly, Uh, And we'll talk about how election is unconditional. Uh, Reprobation is also decreed. And this is Romans 9.20. This was the verse Boyce was preaching at. The first sermon I hear as a believer. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? I apologize to your humanism. Actually, I do not. I sympathize with your humanism. But it's not me. I probably, I think this is exactly what Boyce said. Don't get mad at me. It's God who says that he prepared vessels of wrath for destruction. Now, let me give you an illustration. Let's say I came up with this illustration. Let's say I gave an illustration that it's like a potter in his wheel. And we're all clay, and the potter has the right to make of each vessel what he wants to make. He's the potter. He owns it. And if he wants one for noble use, that's his business. And if he wants one for non-noble use, you'd say, that is an extreme example. But as you're thinking already, that's exactly the example the Bible gives. Actually, it comes from Jeremiah. We'll see the Ur version of that in Jeremiah. But in Romans 9, Paul quotes it. And so, who does God think he is God or something? Yes, he does. But notice also for the display of his glory. Desiring to show his wrath for the praise of the glory of his wrath, apart from which he would not receive all the glory he knows. To make known his power for the display of his power. And his patience. This is not the confession. This is Romans 9. In order to make known the rich, it's all for the display of his glory, the vessel. Now, this is very interesting. It's primarily so that the, the elect will glorify God in the fullness of his justice, wrath, and power by their observation of the condemnation of the reprobate. That brings you to the last paragraph of the book of Isaiah where they're standing on the porch of heaven, the balcony of heaven, looking into hell. I mean, it's a chilling thing. Because for you, for us, we we have names on our minds, and and it it is a horrifying thing. But, But in heaven, 
the saints are looking down and giving praise to God for his justice and wrath and for his mercy. There's our eternal sense of the merciful quality and the gracious quality of our glory will be displayed in the reprobation of the damned. Now, what's interesting is it's often con- the confession itself uses the term predestination and election only with respect to those going to heaven. It uses a different terminology, foreordained, for the reprobate. Uh, you'll see it here. Uh, uh, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some are predestined unto everlasting life, others foreordained to everlasting death. There's an asymmetry of terminology. That's actually a deliberate uh, uh, mimicking of Paul who uses different terminology. And, and some people will say, well, that shows that God has a soft decree of reprobation and a hard degree uh, of, of, uh, of election. That's actually not true. God decreed it all. I think what it shows is the personal, you know, when, when God elected you, he chose you. There's a personal relationship aspect to it. He's, he, is, he has loved you. From the foundations of the earth. And so we all remember in elementary school, we probably did, when, you, when, when they lined the kids up and chose teams and somebody, I choose Ricky Phillips. <laughs> he chose me. Wow. He wants me to be in his team. That whole dynamic is not used of God's decree of reprobation. The terminology of the decree of reprobation is not relational language. It's judicial language. It's, 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 and, and so that's the asymmetry. It's not that God decreed one in a stronger sense than the other. No, he decrees whatsoever comes to pass. He does so absolutely. But the language of his decree has an intimacy and a, and a personal love relationship in it that is not found in the language of reprobation. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm rolling this out quickly. It is an awesome and, and, and fearful thought. But this is, this is what God reveals to us for the display of his own glory. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And that is, that includes the elect and the reprobate. Now, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have good grounds to believe that we're among the elect. But you see how we're being stirred up to give glory to God? Even as we talk about it, it ought to be the case that we're, that the graciousness of our own election is being made more known to us. That's, it's not a haughtiness. People will say, oh, so you lord it over them. No, it's the exact opposite. It, it brings humility. There's nothing that stands between me and an eternity in hell other than the grace of God, apart from any deserving of my own. Uh, now, that leads to unconditional election. By unconditional election, we mean uh, that God did not choose you for any reason in you. It's not like, well, he liked your personality more. No, there's no reason in you. It's Deuteronomy 7. I loved you because I loved you. I chose you because I chose you. And those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. Now you can see the Bible verses. You're thinking of them as they're writing them. Hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, they're really determined to keep that out, or persevering in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as a condition, or causes moving him thereunto. There's nothing causing him to do it at all. It's all his own will, all to the praise of his glorious grace. 
And so there is no merit, there is no claim, it is complete sovereign grace. And again, the result ought to be praise and glory to him out of grateful hearts. Election is unconditional, not on the basis of our faith, our works, our character, our family, the church we grew up in. Now, I will say that God has a tendency for the elect to be born in Christian homes. That's just an observation. But you're, no one's elect because they were born in a Christian home, but the church is the nursery. I mean, God, God like, life is short. He's got to get a lot out of most of us. And so he wants to start us off in Christian homes. Uh, I thank God that the elect is not only covenant children, or else I would not be elect because I'm not a covenant child. Um, I was an adult convert. But it, it, not, not church membership, not... You know, I remember when I was converted, there were people in my family who said, you know, Rick's always been a little bit more spiritual. Nope. Nope. There's nothing in me. It's all in him. He, I loved you because I loved you. I chose you because I chose you. Uh, not a, but it's not apart from means. Paragraph 6, an important paragraph. As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so has he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed in Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. And so so who are the elect? Those who believe in the Lord Jesus. And are saved. By the way, they're going to put an asterisk on that later for uh, covenant children who die in infancy. Uh, there, there is, there, there are, there are children who are, who are elect who never believe, like those who die uh, in infancy. Uh, but this is the rule that the the elect are the believers. It's those who are who are regenerated. It's those who uh, live in Christ. So here's the issue. The elect are revealed through their faith. You have never heard me, you've been here 14 and a half years, you've never heard me preach a sermon saying, you've got to figure out if you're elect or not. You need to make sure you're elect. You, now, even Peter, you make your calling and election confirmed by exercising your faith. No, we're called to faith, not the pursuit of election. And the way to know that you're... Here, here's how it works. This is the old Donald Gray Barnhouse illustration. That God holds a cross before the world on the front of it that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And through faith in Christ, you enter through that door. And once you pass through the door, you look back on the inside of the door and it says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And there is a real sense in which the doctrine of election is an in-house doctrine. Now, everybody needs to hear all truth. But in terms of the, the pastoral use of it in the scriptures... It's, 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 it's not a, we don't, it's not an evangel. I mean, you find no apostles standing before a congregation and going, I have good news and bad news. Some of you are elect, some of you are reprobate. There we go. No, no, never is that preached. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and all the elect believe. The elect always believe. Only the elect believe. The means by which the elect are redeemed is faith in Jesus Christ. They are elected to faith. Therefore, they come to faith uh, 100% of the time. Uh, Now, by the way, that means that there are elect persons who are not believers. 
There are elect persons who are not justified, but they're going to be believers. <laughs> they haven't believed yet. And when they believe, they will be, in fact, there's a, 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 some controversy about eternal justification. And we actually do not use the language eternal justification because biblically you're not justified until you believe. And so the elect will believe, only the elect will believe. Now here again, secondary causes are established. Now this paragraph makes an important statement about the very valuable doctrine known as limited atonement. It's the black sheep of the Reformed family of doctrines, but it shouldn't be. It's the, it's the fifth of, when there's four-point Calvinists, 99% of the time, this is the fifth one. And it's because limited just sounds like a lower view. It's actually a higher view. What limited atonement or particular redemption says is that Christ made atonement for his people, for the elect. Now, you, I think you can say and even should say Christ died for all people. The reason we have the free offer of the gospel is because Christ died. Everyone benefits with the opportunity for salvation, the proclamation of the gospel, because Christ died. But when it comes to his work of atonement, actually making sacrifice for sin, no, that was for the elect only. That was for the elect only. And, and uh, you know, if, if you went to Jesus at Gethsemane and said, who are you dying for? He would not say to give everybody an equal shot. No, 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 he would have started laying names and he would have gotten to my name. I mean that so reverently. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous scene because, you know, it would take a few years to do. But if he were to ungorge his mind, he would have said, Richard Davis Phillips would be born in 1960. And I'm dying. I'm making atonement for his sins. You do not believe, Jesus did not die for you because you believed in him. You believe in him because he died for you. And of course, this gets back to the Trinitarian thing we did last week. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are working not at cross-purposes, but they're working together. And I'm sorry to say, because I don't mean to be pugnacious, but Arminianism has God the Father electing no one, Jesus dying for everyone, and so they're disagreeing, and then the Holy Spirit applying it to some. Well, there you have a, that's a tri, that's a, that's a tripart Wilson, that's a heresy. That's a fundamental division within the Godhead. Whole universe explodes. No, no, no. God the Father elected certain persons. And, and this is why Jesus used the language, all those whom the Father has given to me. And then Jesus made atonement for those persons. That's why in his high priestly prayer, he said, I am not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given to me. And guess who the Holy Spirit regenerates in time? The very same persons whom God the Father elected and for whom God the Son uh, 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 atoned for their sin, he then brings them to uh, to saving faith. Now, to me, that's a, that's wonderful. Because as, as is true with all of these sovereign doctrines, my eternal destiny is taken off of the feeble reed of my saving action. And it's placed onto the unshakable sovereign purpose of God. Jesus did not die for me because I believe. I believe the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit was, was downstream of that. I was born again. I was effectually called to saving faith because my sins had all been washed away. The washing away of my sins was affected before I believed. And while I must believe and that condition is real, it is not the ground of it. 
The ground of my forgiveness is the atoning work of God the Son that he accomplished. It is finished, he said, of my sins before I believed because God the Father ordained it in eternity. Therefore, I was brought to saving faith. Uh, it also means regeneration precedes faith. The elect are effectually called, I'm quoting that paragraph, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by the working of his Spirit in due season. So we're not born again by the Spirit because we believe. No, 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 we, 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 we believe because we're born again by the Spirit. So these, all the biblical means are fully intact. Now I'm almost done here. Uh, some comments about the reprobate. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy, as he pleased for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by. There's the key statement. And this deals with the justice issue of it. No one will go to hell because on the grounds that God didn't choose them or he reprobated them. Now, that is the decree. We don't deny that. But the judgment will be for sins they committed. And God, he, 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 he chose not to extend his mercy towards them. And he, and to ordain them, and he ordained them for dishonor for their sins to the praise of his glorious justice. No one will stand on the final judgment and say unjust, unfair. It is, yeah, that's true. God is, God's power and his justice and his wrath are being glorified. He decreed it. But it's going back, it's the same with the author of evil issue. They were the proximate cause. People choose their own damnation. It is a self, as I said Sunday night, these are self-inflicted to self-inflicted eternal death. The proximate cause is always the unbelief, the working of their own will in an evil way and rebellion to God, of which he ordained from the foundations of the world. Uh, Here's the last statement. Now, this really shows the influence of Calvin's Institutes. If you read the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin on predestination, I know what you're thinking is, oh, I can never read it. You know, here's a general rule. When a book is in print 500 years later, it's well-written. That's just a general rule. It's awesome. And it's in relatively short paragraphs. Well, moderately short paragraphs. And one of Calvin's emphases is this. this. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto from the certainty of their effectual vocation that they may be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford much matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. What, what a wonderful paragraph. First of all, it's to be handled with prudence. By the way, this does not mean that we're embarrassed about it. It doesn't mean that we should be reluctant about it. It just means we shouldn't engage in needless speculism, speculation. We need to, we need to follow the scriptures very carefully. Speculation and abstraction are to be avoided in teaching this doctrine. It is not platonic idealism. It's a completely different thing. We are to handle it with special prudence and care. One reason is we know that we're going to be rubbing up against uh, uh, worldly ideologies that uh, are opposed to it. Now, some people argue, and if you grew up in an Arminian church, when you went to your pastor and said, why did you never talk about predestination? Why did you skip why did you stop Romans in chapter 7, right? Or at the end of chapter 8 at the most, that's the standard practice. He's going to say it's too difficult, it's too confusing, it just causes problems. 
You know, when you read Calvin and the Institutes, he, he quote, it's like, he says the same. He goes, this is what they say all the time. He goes, then why did the Holy Spirit inspire it? If the Holy Spirit inspired it and put it in the scripture, we need to know. We need to study it. But we want to do so carefully. And here's Calvin's excellent rule that I think of so often. Where God makes an end of teaching, let us make an end of learning. And so we're reasoning on the handrails of Holy Scripture. And we're going to go all the way out. But we're going to stop where God's Word stops. And we're going to, we're going to shape it. And that, that, all that confessional statement, you can just hear the biblical language. You're probably thinking verses that they're thinking. It's, it's shaped and governed by the Word of God. And so we're, to, we're, to, we're not to do it with speculation and abstraction. It should not be avoided simply because it's challenging. The truth is it's not difficult. And you know who will show you that is the children raised in this church who have never been humanists. It's amazing if you've not been a humanist first, it makes perfect sense. The problem is people like me who were humanists for 30 years and, and highly advanced ones in my case. That's the problem. But it's not in, or intrinsically difficult. And I, I think you'll see that in the children who were catechized on Wednesday nights in churches like ours, it doesn't, it, it's no, there's no, they're not, they're not scratching their head going, this, this is fundamentally crazy. No, no, no. But it is challenging. It should not be avoided. It is taught in scripture primarily for two reasons. One is to give God glory. And even in those Pauline passages, he's loading in the, and he, it's the attributes of God that are being glorified. Therefore, we want God to be glorified. There, we're going to teach it. But the other reason is to give assurance to believers. That is the primary context. To give assurance to believers. There is a sense in which the doctrine of election and predestination is an in-house doctrine. Now, it doesn't mean we only say it, you know, when we're behind closed doors. I don't mean that. But the intent is primarily pastoral so that you will ground your hope of eternal life on the sovereign will of God and not on yourself. And, and that uh, you see there, uh, uh, this doctrine shall afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility. It humbles me. It makes me diligent and gives me abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the Bible, those who have a proper ground of the assurance of salvation. And so the Bible tells you who believe that you were chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world, that you would, by the way, it was also ordained that you would be holy and blameless before him. Uh, and so it is abundant assurance to bless. I think for most of us, the real highest purpose is the way it glorifies God. And, and we humble ourselves before this. But what comfort and assurance comes to believers who realize, this I know, I've, I've trusted in Jesus Christ. That I can know. I've trusted in the Lord Jesus, and the word of God tells me, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, no one will snatch you from your hand. Uh, this is the, the context and when Calvin rolled out what's called the Deuteronomy 29-29 principle, which he often mentioned, but it's this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So there are mysteries. And there, even tonight I said, don't ask me. I can't reconcile that. I can't resolve that. There are things that are too, and people say this is too high. And Calvin goes, no, there are things that are too high. And this is quoting Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things do belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. 
that we may do all the words of this law. Moses in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let's love and embrace what God has taught the doctrine of election for us, for us to be humbled by it, for us to be consoled by it, for us to have a firmness of assurance that we therefore would not keep stressing about, am I saved or not? And we would do the will of the, we get busy serving the Lord because we now have peace. And it has the primary purpose that we would all the more and have all the more reason to give God the glory he deserves. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight and the teaching of the doctrines associated with your decree. And Lord, uh, I thank you for the way that you superintended the work of the confession. It's not the Bible, but it's very biblical, and we're grateful for it, Lord. And I pray it would be a help to all the folks here, those watching online. And Father, let us be humbled in your sight. We have no condition in us that we point to. There's nothing that commends us to you except what you have done in us and have given us because you chose us in Christ. Well, Father, let, it, let our identity not be found in the things of the world then, but to be found in Christ and in your grace revealed in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.